Before we hop into today's episode of the podcast, I want to tell you guys about someone I've been partnering with over the past few months. The name of the company is 2 Before, and if you guys are looking to take your training to the next level, 2 Before is the right product for you. 2 Before is blackcurrant powder, and blackcurrants are antioxidant berries grown in New Zealand. Studies have shown that consuming them regularly improves endurance by increasing blood flow and removing lactic acid. It's used by professional running team 10 Man Elite, as well as teams in the NFL, NBA, and the NCAA. There was one study that showed that using two before consistently can improve your athletic performance by 4.6%. And so as I look to close out this fall on a high note with my training, as well as get in some really quality training this winter, two before is going to become a staple pre-run, pre-workout. I absolutely love this stuff. I've worked with two before for a long time. For this reason, it's become a staple in my daily training and life routine. Because of that, you guys can get 30% off at two before with code the running effect 30. Not only does this get you guys 30% off, but also free shipping. And I've left a link in the show notes. Again, highly recommend this product. And I definitely recommend at least trying it out once and seeing if it works for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Running Effect Podcast with Dominic Schleter. I'm your host, Dominic, and today's conversation is not only one of my favorite episodes we've ever released, but I think perhaps the most moving episode I've ever come out with. I have the privilege of speaking with the one and only Caleb McCoy II and sharing his story. You'll understand why I say it's so moving in a minute as you listen to it, but from the age of 11, Caleb started his battle with drug addiction, which went throughout the years and ultimately led to him overdosing on heroin on six different occasions and ultimately led to him spending some time in prison. As you'll hear in today's conversation, Caleb completely flipped his life around and got back to giving back to his community, doing these incredible endurance feats and so many other things. I'm going to keep this intro short because you'll get the opportunity to hear Caleb's story and hear him fill it out, and I can't do it justice. But today's conversation is truly remarkable, and it was a privilege to have Caleb share his story in full. I'm just going to leave it at that. Listen to today's conversation, and please consider sharing it with someone you know. Uh, I know this conversation can impact a lot of people, so please share it with a friend, two friends, five friends, ten friends. Help us spread Caleb's incredible, moving story and I think he's a testament to how you can flip your life around. And oh man, just such a good conversation. And then my only final note for you guys is if you enjoyed today's episode or have enjoyed any of the episodes in the past, consider giving us a follow and a five-star review wherever you are listening to this podcast. With all of those notes aside, I hope you all enjoy my incredible conversation with the man, the myth, the legend, Caleb McCoy II. Caleb McCoy the second, a privilege to say these words. Welcome to the Running Effect. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Dom. I'm excited to be here, man. Thank you for the opportunity. We met in a coffee shop in Orlando, and I think some of the greatest connections in life uh, come when you're not expecting them. And I think it's really awesome to see God place those people in my life. For you, I'm sure it's a similar situation where God puts people in your life at, at random times and periods. And I never met you, never heard of you, never heard your story. And to be able to hear your story over the few days I got to spend with you in Orlando was super impactful. So I'm excited to get into it with you today. Me too. And um, some of the most uh, important relationships that I have in my life right now just were serendipitous, you know, just happened, it was a happenstance, you know, but I definitely believe that there's a greater good that's supposed to come out of that, out of those encounters that we have with people. So again, man, thank you for the opportunity to come on and share there's so much to your story. You know it way better than I ever will. Where do you think we should start? Oh, man. Um, I, I think it's important to start at the beginning. So for people that don't know me, um, like you said, Caleb McCoy II, I grew up here in Cherokee, North Carolina, on the Kuala Boundary, which is very similar to an uh, Indian reservation. Um, the only discrepancy with that is we actually uh, purchased this land that we live on. The government didn't just places here but i grew up here in cherokee um indigenous community and um as with a lot of indigenous communities there's a ton of um, childhood trauma there's a ton of domestic violence just a lot of challenges um within the community and everything and within the household and so i was uh i had some of those challenges as well growing up domestic violence um seeing 
Um, people use party, use drugs, party, things of that nature. Um, I had some two incredible parents uh, who were very loving, supported me, provided for me. But, you know, they had their own struggles and they were doing the best that they can uh, raising me and my sister, my older sister, who's seven years older than me. Um, so seeing some of those struggles early on in life and not really having a, a North Star, a thing like I didn't have. I had no uh, understanding of what faith was and, and things that that I do now. And I didn't really have a mentor in my life. You know, um, my dad was my dad was uh, a carpenter. He he um, was a hardworking man and everything. But for some reason, I just didn't gravitate to the things that he was doing. I wasn't interested in that. And so um, not having that North Star, not having some sort of faith, not having some sort of purpose or somebody to help kind of lead me. Um, and then having some of those struggles at home led me down a dark path. And so I remember starting getting migraines when I was 11 years old and they took me, my mom took me to the hospital. Uh, long story short, they prescribed me a narcotic because of all these challenges that I had. I think that um, I started to, I started to abuse my narcotic. And it, it gave me this escape. It helped me to feel comfortable in my own skin. It helped me to, um, I guess it, had me ha it helped me to have confidence, you know? And so it was a very slippery slope shortly thereafter at 11 years old. I'm full. I'm fully addicted, you know, and I'm breaking into the medicine cabinet. I'm stealing med medications. I'm getting into my mom's underwear drawer, just abusing my medication, my, my narcotic and everything. And so I start going down this really slippery slope. But in the meantime, sports was always like a saving grace in my life. And so I just discovered running very early on. And I remember my first year as a seventh grader, uh, I sucked at cross, at cross country, man. And I was the second worst on the team. We had a really good team. We had a really good running program back then at Swain County High School in Bryson City, North Carolina. And I think, too, like just to back up for just a second, I think, too, that was really playing a big role in my substance use because – I was a Native American kid that went to a white school. And so I didn't really fit in at that white school because I was a different color, right? And I came from a different culture. But also, too, growing up in Cherokee in an indigenous community, but going to a white school, I didn't fit in with all the natives because they called, they, they called me a coconut. You know, it was white on the outside and brown on the inside. So I, got, I was trying to figure out my identity. I didn't know what that was. And so running started to give that to me at an early age. My eighth grade year, I found a little bit of success and I won conference in cross country and uh, fell in love with it, you know, and um, started playing football in ninth grade. And I remember my junior year, first time in my life, um, harder drugs were introduced to me. I was on a football bus heading to a game and somebody pulls out a bottle of meth and they were like, hey, we're going to put this in our water bottle, Caleb, and it's going to help us play like Superman. And again, I didn't have... You know, I had no understanding of what that was, what that was going to do to me. And I didn't have somebody to kind of talk to me about those things. It just, you just didn't, wasn't um, a very uh, popular topic to talk about, like these harder drugs being introduced to high school kids. And so I was like, yeah, let's do that. You know, I was thinking of it as like taking yellow jackets or something like that, you know. And I remember taking that, that mess for the first time and, it did, it did the thing that we thought it was going to do. It helped us, you know, have this uh, just like superhuman strength and play like we never would have played if we hadn't been taking it. And so I was like, I like this. And again, it helped me to escape. Um, and I, I go down this slippery slope, Dom, and I start to to get mixed up in the partying scene and, and start failing classes. And ultimately, I got kicked off the basketball team my senior year because I failed a couple of classes and I had the opportunity to run track or play football at the next level. Um, but because I failed those classes, those opportunities were lost. Right? They were taken from me and barely graduated high school, get out, get out of school. And I have two sons with two different women and I was never able to be a father figure in their life because of my drug issue, because of my identity issue, because of, this sickness that I was that I was struggling with, you know, and this the, the disease of addiction was just really keeping me down and out, and so I didn't know how to deal with any of that stuff, man. And 
I remember um, my son, he's about five years old and my youngest son, that is. And I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't ever around my oldest son at all. Uh, he and or his mom and I split up about a year after he was born. Same thing with my youngest son. And so here I am, deadbeat dad, no purpose, no vision, don't know where I'm going with life. 23 years old, my youngest son is living with me at the time. I'm doing the best that I can to try to take care of him while, you know, being a functioning addict at the time. And I remember going into the bathroom. My dad had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so I get this devastating news. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how am I going to deal with this? And at the time, I was snorting pills, um, snorting pain pills. And this was when... Um, this is when the pain pill epidemic really started with Oxycontin and things of that nature. And so here I am using pain pills, can't hold down a job. Can't, I'm not, I'm not like being a dad to either one of my sons, just barely hanging on, barely skating by in life and get this news of my dad. He's got six months to live from pancreatic cancer. And so I, I, you make negotiations with yourself, right? Especially when you're in the midst of an addiction, you put these, these guardrails up and you say like, if I don't cross this, then I'm okay. You know, and you, you, you tell yourself that you've got it together as long as you can continue doing this thing or that thing. And for me, I was like, as long as I'm just snorting pills and I'm not shooting up and I'm not a junkie like all those other people, then I've got this addiction under control. And that's the thing that I used to tell myself. And so I get this news and my dad going to pass away. And the girl that I was with at the time, I had told her to go get some syringes. And so here I am starting to negotiate with my step, myself because I've got this, this weight of this news and this trauma. And I don't know how I'm going to, you know, get through life without my dad, you know, who, who I'm named after, who's like the person that, that I do look up to. It's the only um, male, male role model that I had in my life at the time. And so I remember sitting in that bathroom, getting that syringe and my son's knocking on the door and I'm staring at this syringe, Dom. And I've got this pill loaded up in this rig and this syringe. And I lay a towel down at the door and my son's knocking on the door and he's like, dad, what are you doing in there? And I've got these, these finger, God's fingerprints on my stories, God winks where I feel like God was calling out to me. And so, like I said, I lay the towel down at the door and I shoot up for the first time in my life. And the immense amount of shame that I had in that moment was just overwhelming. And I said to myself, like, I can't believe I turned into this guy. I can't believe that I'm doing the things that I said I was never going to do. And so for me, it was, it was a sense of hopelessness, thinking to myself, like, you were once this. You had these things going for you. Now none of you don't have any of that, you know. And, and I was like, I had no purpose. I had no, like I said, I had no vision. And so I'm like, this is going to be my life, like. I'm just going to be a drug addict. I'm just going to be a junkie and there's no hope for me. And that's, that's the thought I was ruminating on that all the time, you know? And I really believe that like just having that fixed mindset was destroying me and not seeing that people do recover, not seeing that there was a way out. Like the people that I was surrounding myself with, that I was surrounding myself with was continuing to make me sick as well. And so my dad fights for like three years, man, trying to see me. I remember the nurse toward the end of his fight with his cancer. The nurse asked him like, Caleb, like you're, you're tough. You're a tough man. Why, why are you fighting so hard? And he told the nurse, he's like, I want to see my son become the man that I know he can be. And so that's what he's fighting for, man. I gave him six months to live. He fights for three years. And the, a couple of days before he passed away, I remember going, to his bedside, he called me to his bedside and he spoke something over me, man. That was just so profound. And I take with me all the time. And I'm actually, I got this race coming up and I, and I remember my dad's words as I started to approach this race. Um, but he was like, son, you're going to come out of this. You're going to beat this one day and you're going to do some great things for our family and for our community and for the world. And Dom, I remember standing there looking at my dad, looking down at him, and I've got sweat beads just rolling down my face because I'm withdrawing. And I'm thinking to myself, like, he's crazy. Like, he's lost his mind. This is all I'm, I'm, all I'm ever going to be is a junkie. 
Like, I don't even deserve the air that I get to breathe right now. And that's, that's how dark my thinking was at the time. And so a couple of days later, I'm in the bathroom that's connected to his hospice room. And I can hear my dad's heart rate monitor beeping, beeping. And it flatlines. And I've got a needle in my arm at the time that my dad leaves this world. And I remember pulling that needle out of my arm, wiping the blood off my arm. And I walk over to my dad's bedside and I give him a kiss. And I remember seeing this necklace around his neck and thinking to myself, like, he's got this gold, gold chain around his neck. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder who's going to get that. Like, I wish I could. I was looking at the necklace around my late father's neck, wondering who was going to get it because I wanted to sell it. Like, that's how jacked up my freaking thinking was, man. And I gave give my dad a kiss on the forehead and I called my pill dealer and I said, Hey, I need something. My dad just died. I went straight back to it. So this was September, 2014. And I just go down this downward spiral, man, just really, really fast. And I'm trying to destroy myself and I'm trying to, I try to commit suicide by overdose on several occasions. And for some reason, man, like something, and I know what that, you know what that something is, right? Something just kept me here for a bigger reason. I didn't understand what it was. and I wasn't seeking that out. And I truly believe when the teacher is ready, that when a student is ready, the teacher appears. But I just wasn't ready. And so I continue to try to commit suicide by overdose, like I said. And I remember the worst overdose that I had. I was uh, had a bunch of people. It's like 2016. I had a bunch of people over at my house. We're all using, all shooting up. Just a big party. Everybody using and everything. And and I remember loading a syringe up with a bunch of heroin and a bunch of meth. And I knew that if I shot up, that it was going to, it was probably going to kill me. And I remember looking at the syringe and thinking to myself, you're better off dead anyways. Go ahead and do it, you know? And so I did. I shot up and I went into immediate overdose. Everybody flees except the girl that I was with and a boy that I had or a guy that I grew up with. They throw me in a bathtub. They're beating on my chest. They're throwing ice on me, cold water on me, trying to get me breathing. My eyelids are blue. My lips are blue. My ears are blue. Like, I, I'm not breathing. Um, I'm unresponsive. I have no heartbeat. Ambulance shows up. They drag me out of the bathtub, pull me in my living room, start working on me, giving me Narcan. And this is another one of those God winks, man. The woman who saved my life in that moment was my future mother-in-law. And I had no idea, like my wife and I, we weren't even, even together at the time. We weren't even talking, we weren't friends or anything like that. But ultimately, that woman became my mother-in-law. And so um, I remember getting up, you know, getting up from that overdose, and I ran everybody off. I was like, get the hell out of my house. I don't want you in here. And I went straight back to it, man, like a moth to the flame. And so a couple months later, I've got just – a ton of warrants in three different counties and they finally catch up to me. I had a bunch of absconding charges from my probation. So I wasn't checking in my probation. I ended up getting in a high speed chase in a vehicle, getting away from the cops, J jump out on foot, get in a foot race, smoke all the cops, <laughs> get away from them. They don't like that too much either, by the way. So uh, when they finally caught up to me, they set my bond really high. So this was, uh, this was March of 2017, and I knew my bond was so high that I wasn't getting out for a while. So I remember sitting back in jail, and I'm thinking, all right, you're going to be here for a while. Let's, you know, let's do your time. That's just one of the things that you hear people that go, that go to jail or prison, like, you got to do your time and don't let your time do you. And so that's what I started to do. And for some reason, man, for the first time in my life, um, I remember uh, just starting to, to pray, you know, and and I remember I've got this paper still at the house and I'm, I'm I'm journaling some while I'm locked up and everything. And and I start to write out this prayer and I don't know why I've done it, but I was like, God, if you're real, it's like one of those foxhole prayers. I'm like, God, if you're real, show me something and show me that my dad's still with me somehow. And I remember laying my pen down and I walk upstairs to grab something and I come back down the steps and this pastor walks in. And this man is a striking resemblance of my dad. 
he comes in, he's got the same type of shoes my dad wore, the same pants, the same belt, a flannel shirt tucked in. Um, his mustache is trimmed the same way. His eye color is the same. He wears his watch on the inside of his wrist. He comes in and just shares a very simple message, a very uh, the gospel message of like, you know, God has God has a plan and purpose for your life. All these things that you're carrying, Caleb, that you've been holding on to and you've been fighting, they're not yours to carry. Like if you just give that over to God and ask God to reveal to you, like how can you turn all this pain into purpose? Like he, he will help you do that. And that's what I needed to hear in the moment, Dom. And I believe that, man. And I, and no pun intended, but I ran with it in that moment. And it changed my life. It changed my perspective. It changed my heart. It changed my thinking. And I remember up until this day, and I still describe, describe it this way, but I've never had the, an exhilarating feeling of freedom like that. And I was locked up. And I was in C-Pod in Swain County Detention Center. And I knew it wasn't getting out, but I knew I was free. And I knew something had changed and I knew things were going to be different moving forward. But I had to do the work. I had to start doing the internal work to make sure that I was strong enough to go out and to chase down this purpose and to chase down this 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 new life that God had given me. Um, and I knew that all those things that I'd been saved from, all those overdoses, you know, overdose six different occasions. I had to be brought back with with Narcan on three of those occasions. Like I shouldn't be here, but God kept me here for a reason. So I was like. I'm going to pursue that with every fiber in my being. And so that's when my, that's when my spiritual journey started. That's when my recovery journey start, started. And that's when my fitness journey started because I started to, um, we had ordered a, a men's health body weight workout guide while we were locked up in jail. So we started to do this body weight, these body weight workouts uh, with some of the guys that I was doing time with. And I had 20 steps that went from the common area upstairs to where we all slept and I would walk up and down those steps day after day after day. And I just fell in love with movement and I was doing the be doing the best that I could with what I had at the moment. And so that's how I got started, man. And I got out of jail. Um, I heard this guy named David Goggins shortly thereafter. This was, um, late 2017, I was released in August of 2017. Hear this guy, David Goggins, and um, I was like, man, I really need to push myself. I need to find something that I can pour myself into that's going to challenge me, that's going to expose me to different people and, and different mindsets and um, help me to have this natural high, you know, the thing that I've been chasing for so long in drugs. And so eight weeks after getting out of jail, having this 15 year addiction um, where I didn't exercise, didn't work out, didn't do any of that stuff. I signed up for an Ironman 70.3. I didn't do any running. I didn't do any swimming. I bought a bike the day before I went and I show up at beach to battleship in Wilmington, North Carolina. And I completed that race. And all I kept telling myself throughout that whole day, no, it was, it was the scariest thing that I've ever done. Even still to this day, because I got in that water, man. I was in the first wave of the day. <clears throat> there was 1,800 people. Get into the water, 1.2-mile swim. Every single person passes me. So I'm the first in the water and the last to get out. And I'm like, I don't know how I want to finish this, but I know that I've overcame so much in my life, and this is nothing compared to what I just, what I just beat, the thing that's in my rear view. And so that's the mindset that I take in everything that I do. But – yeah, man, that's just a little bit about my backstory. Um, man, that's all. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I appreciate uh, your honesty and vulnerability and in, in sharing all of that. And I feel like every time I, I talk to you, you personally bless me with your words. And I'm, I'm so glad you're still with us today. And as we'll get into all the incredible things you're doing. Uh, and I can just imagine the face on your dad's face right now. Uh, with all you've accomplished. So diving into to some of the different aspects of that story, I want to go back to that 11-year-old self when you kind of first started going down that downward spiral. The Caleb I know today, all the incredible things he's done. If you could go back in time, this version of yourself, sit down and have a conversation with that 11-year-old self right before he goes down that deep downward spiral, what would you say to him? What would that conversation look like? You know, I don't know if it was... I don't know if it would be something in particular that I would say. 
as opposed to something that I would expose that 11-year-old to. I feel like the things that the people that I get to talk to, the people that I get to serve, um, the places that I get to go, I think that would make more of an impact than any words that I could ever say. You know, my 17-year-old son, he's getting ready to go to Austin, Texas with me where we'll be creating content with with our friend Jeremy Miller. You know, and I, I want to expose him to that. I would expose my 11-year-old self to that, those types of things and just talk about, like, having a purpose, having a vision, knowing who you are. Um, yeah, those are, like, ha- having an identity. Where does that come from? What does that mean? You know, and really ask questions more so than having a conversation saying you should do this, this, and this. So that's, that's what I would definitely do differently. Going throughout high school, you mentioned you became quite the athlete and that as you started to fail classes, the opportunities started to be stripped away from you. You mentioned a little bit how you felt, but going into that deeper, what were the feelings when you heard those opportunities were closed? You know, it sounded like you love sports. Sports was your world. Sports was like your idol at that point, uh, what was it like to have those opportunities stripped away? I was empty. You know, I, I didn't know. That was the thing that where I felt like I had purpose and I, I was good at it. You know, it was something I was I really enjoyed. And like even to this day, it's just it's not even about the competition. It's not about the races. It's about what it does for my mental health. And I think that that was one of the things that I'm like, well, what do I do with that now? You know, because I always struggle with anxiety and depression growing up and and things of that nature. And so I remember getting that news and I went straight. So I kid you not, I had my my girlfriend at the time pick me up and I go into the park and start poaching, like poaching animals. Like I was was a big hunter back in the day as well. So I was I go in and I start breaking a law. Like as soon as I get kicked off the basketball team, I remember going into practice and he was like, Caleb, you're off the team. You know, you failed a class and we, we can't, you can't be on a team now. And so I just went like <laughs> caution to the wind and just start doing a bunch of crazy stuff. Like I lost that identity and I had that emptiness and I was like, what do I do now? When you think back to your relationship with your parents, you mentioned early on your relationship with your dad, your relationship with your mom. If you could go back, like, I don't even know exactly what the question is, but like if you were them, what would you have changed? And do you ever, as your dad's gone, resent the fact that they didn't step in more? No, because I really believe that resentments is one of the main things that keeps people sick. It keeps people to continue to use. Um, So no, I'm not resentful because I look at my mom and dad, Caleb and Ruth as Caleb and Ruth, if I look at them as mom and dad and I have this expectation of like they should have it all together, then resentments do come in into play. So I look at my mom and dad as Caleb and Ruth, like, well, what did they struggle with? You know, looking at my dad, like growing up and born in 1947, grew up dirt poor, you know, seen a lot of partying, a lot of, you know, violence and fighting and everything like that. And, and so I understood like where he came from. My mom, same thing. She, Both of her parents, both of my grandparents were murdered. Uh, my mom witnessed my grandma being murdered in front of her at nine years old. Um, to think about like seeing what my mom and dad both did professionally in their own lives and like creating a life that we, where we didn't go without, where they constantly provided, um, was just absolutely amazing. Like, and it sp- inspires me to this day. Like my dad was just a hardworking man, like, love to earn the mo- his money by the sweat of his brow, you know, and beat his hands all to pieces, like building houses and providing for us. Like, I love him so much. And I think the only thing that I would, I would talk to them about is making me work like they worked and not giving me things, not creating this sense of entitlement because they went without, they didn't want us to go without. And so they would hand me things hand and fist hand over fist. And I wish that they would have taken a step back and been like, you got to earn things in life, you know, and, and instilled some of that in me more. But other than that, man, they were great. You mentioned early on growing up in North Carolina, that specific part, there was a ton of generational trauma and just tons of stuff that people living there were consistently dealing with. 
now as you get back to your community through nonprofits and other things that we'll get into, how much have you observed that these issues, drug issues, violence issues, whatever it might be, is generational? And how important do you think it is to have someone within that line stop it? I definitely think that the majority of the issues are generational. Just seeing seeing the different, I mean, the family unit has just been destroyed through addiction, which honestly stems from, in indigenous communities, a loss of identity because people came in, they, t- they took things from us. They took our, they, they said we couldn't practice our culture. They said we couldn't practice our language. They sent us to boarding schools. We experienced a lot of sexual assault, sexual abuse. So those things have trickled down over the generate over you know the the past generations, and now it's showing up in different things like with the drug use, with the domestic violence, things of that nature, with the obesity, um, just the, the the health problems that we have, um, diabetes issues, things of that nature. Like that, I think all of those things stem from that generational trauma that we've experienced as Indigenous people over the last few hundred years. Um, as far as like the importance of that's one thing that my wife and I, we talk about doing like we're, we're going to be the one to stop the generational trauma. We're going to be the one to stop. Like she did this, this family tree thing um, where she looked back at her, like her mom's side of the family, her dad's side of the family and was just looking at who all's experienced sexual abuse, who all's experienced, you know, domestic violence, divorce, all these different things. And like her, her whole family tree is just, riddled with that stuff and so we know like we know better now right when you know better you do better and so it's up to us to break those things and to create something like what we're doing with our nonprofit, where it's a men's transitional living home where we want to instill this help these men on this healing journey where they can break those generational traumas in their own family and so somebody's got to do it you know and this is a gra- grassroots initiative that we're doing and it's really important to us. And I feel like, you know, because we've been through the fire, like we can have that impact whenever we go and we talk to these men or we talk to the people that we're leading and that we're serving. You shared the words your dad shared with you leading up to his death. For you, reflecting on that, knowing all that you've accomplished since then and the man you've become, what's that reflection process like and how often do you reflect on the person you've become since that point that your dad shared those words? I probably don't reflect, reflect on it enough, Dom. I, I, I definitely need to sit back and just spend some time thinking about that, man. Like seeing now seeing my dad's words come to fruition in my life is I'm like, dang, how do he know that? You know, he's right on, he's right on the brink of death when he's saying these words and like, maybe had this divine revelation, you know, and that's what I'm like, maybe God was speaking through my dad and God was speaking through my dad in that moment to say that over me and for me to have such a a profound, vivid memory of him saying those things. And like, I said, that's why I'm like, I believe that our words create worlds and we should really, really be very aware of the things that we say to people, especially people that, that we love and we care about. Like our words can really, really, change a life. And so, you know, reflecting back on where I'm at now, I, I'm always grateful, but I, I don't ever settle. Like I'm grateful to work, to be where I'm at, to be the things that I'm doing, to hopefully make the impact that I'm trying to make. But also too, I know there's more work to be done, you know, and there is no finish line. We're just going to continue to do the best that we can and make it, make a difference the best we can. You mentioned through your story that multiple times you tried to kill yourself, that you tried to intentionally overdose and those destructive thoughts and patterns that you would get into. I don't know if anyone listening right now is struggling with that, but you know, it's kind of like the calling from God that you've kind of spoken to. I feel like there's going to be a person or two listening today that, that has suicidal thoughts. And the American Psychological Association last year came out with a study that more than 20% of teens have seriously considered suicide. So just statistically speaking, that's probably accurate. What would you say to that individual listening today who's broken, who doesn't feel needed, doesn't have identity, doesn't feel hope? What would you tell them, Caleb? Number one is you are, you are loved and you have 
an immense amount of, of purpose in this world. And even in those dark times when it doesn't feel like it, like just hang on, you know, just hang on because brighter days always are around the corner. You know, I really believe that the, the night is the darkest before the dawn. And just remembering that, like it's, it works in cycles, you know, sometimes you get down in these, you get down in the dumps and everything. And like, you feel like you're worthless and you have no purpose and you have no meaning in this life. But I think too, really surrounding yourself with people that will speak life over you and maybe even enlisting a, a mentor or somebody that you can reach out to. That's really, really important. And raising your hand and saying like, Hey, I don't, I'm not doing well right now. You know, I, there's several people in my life now when I don't ha when I'm not having a good day, I can message them and be like, hey, I just need you to check in with me. This is where I'm at. Um, that's really, really important. You know, our secrets keep us sick, you know, and I think it's really important to get get that stuff off of our chest. We're, it's not meant for us. We're not meant to carry that type of stuff, you know, and I, I truly believe that we need to be sharing one another's burdens. And so don't feel like you are burdening somebody by not having it all together and need, needing to have somebody to talk to have somebody, you know, reach out to somebody like right now in this moment. Like if you, if you need somebody to talk to, reach out to me, reach out to Dominic, you know, and know that we're here for you and there, there are better days ahead. Just keep hanging on. I think a statistic that put things in such immense perspective in terms of, the purpose each individual human being has is the statistic of the probability of you uniquely existing as you. The number is so astronomically big that the easiest way to put it into terms, and I think this still falls a little bit short, is 400 trillion to one. Like a number so big, I can't even comprehend what 400 trillion to one, like what those odds are. And when you hear <laughs> a number that big, it's like you, whether you believe in God or not, you were created for a reason, for a purpose to do great things. And I feel like hearing people like you share your story of the way in which you've witnessed to giving back to coming from such a dark place, similar to Goggins and the amazing impact you guys have had. It's, it's truly, I think a testament to how each individual is placed on earth for a reason. You know, it's hard to look at that number and just say you're here by chance. And I truly don't believe that's the case for anyone. Me neither. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Dom. You mentioned that when you went to jail, you were, I mean, factually as closed off as you could be, right? Behind bars in this facility. And you mentioned when you kind of had that epiphany moment, crying out to God, asking him to, to make himself known to you through, through your dad. Um, I think the words you used were, you said something to the extent of like freedom, feeling more free than ever, yet factually you were more closed off than ever. <laughs> yeah. What is the freedom of discovering God? What did that feel like for you? Um, the most profound feeling of awe and wonder that you could ever have. So if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you're standing on the edge of the canyon and you feel so small, but yet you're like, man, I, I can't believe that I'm standing and beside something so large and beautiful and vast, but yet I'm still here. Like you said, like th that the probability of me standing here. Like I, I remember just thinking to myself, like this is what this is what life's about. You know, like I just felt like these these this weight and these shackles and these chains that just fell off of me. You know, and and like I said, it changed my whole, my thought process, my heart and everything. And I knew in that moment that everything was different. So the most profound experience of awe and wonder and, and lightness that you could ever have, like times that by a hundred, that's what I felt in that moment. And I remember calling my mom, Dom, and I, I immediately told her what had happened. And she was like, she tells people to this day, I knew in that moment he was a different man. Mm. From the time that I called her that morning, I was cussing every other breath, GD this, GD, bond me out, get me out. Of and then calling her that evening, I'm like, I'm just going to do my time, mom. Like, and I told her what had happened. I'm like, I need to be in here. Like, God's got me in here for a reason. So I went from 
get me out of here to like, God's got me in here for a reason because I need to get stronger before I step out because my addiction's doing push-ups in the parking lot waiting on me to step out of this jail. And I need to get stronger to prepare for when I, when those doors pop and I walk out into the real, the real world. And so it was just having that peace. Like I remember, I remember used to, I, I would get on the bunk beds and there's a little bitty window and you look down on the angles here in Bryson city and I would, I would sit in that bunk bed and I would just watch people watch. And I'd be thinking to myself, like, I can't wait to get out of here. Like things are going to be different. I can't wait to go grocery shopping. Yeah, <laughs> I can't, I can't wait to just enjoy the, the small things in life. And so like, it was that mindset that I had never had in my entire life. That's, that's the way I was thinking of the world, man. It's beautiful. You mentioned turning your pain into purpose. What would you say to every individual listening? Because I think as human beings, we all experience pain, obviously in differing levels. Some people, it's extreme trauma and abuse and some things you shared with me today. Other people, it's just neglect from a relationship that they care a lot about or depression or loneliness, whatever it might be. We all experience pain in our day-to-day life. Why do you think it's important to turn that pain into something greater? And how would you instruct people to do it? That's a great question, Dom. Um, I think that it helps us to continue to grow. It helps us not but to become resentful, you know, and be, and be a victim because un, unfortunate circumstances are going to happen. Adversity is going to happen. We're going to be we're going to be let down. You know, we're going to feel failure. We're going to feel like the world is just weighing on us, you know, in different situations and circumstances and everything. And I feel like it's, it's really, really important to step back, think of, think of those things objectively and figure out like, okay, what can I learn from this? Uh, I shared a message at a, at a drug court graduation recently. And I talked about our suffering being sacred because our suffering can lead us to the promised land. If we channel that energy correctly, you know, and if we, if we have a, an objective outlook on the thing that we are suffering from, you know, and understanding that it's not meant to keep us stuck. It's not meant to keep us sick, but it's meant to propel us to something greater, a greater version of ourselves, have more gratitude, have more appreciation for the small things in life. Understand that like, it's not just about, it's not just about me. You know, how can I turn this, this thing that's happening to me into good for other people? And so that's, that's like one of the things I talk about all the time, like our suffering is sacred. It's a privilege to, yeah, it hurts in a moment and it may be counterintuitive to, to your thinking, but it's a privilege to be able to go through things and, and survive them and come out the other side. And it, like I said, you know, in the moment, it feels like it's the worst thing ever. But once you get to the other side, you're like, okay, like what, what can I learn from this? And then how can I turn it to good? Um, as far as like what, I mean, I think I answered that. Did I answer that pretty good? I think so. No, I think you hit the the nail on the head there, or at least it made sense to me. Uh, Caleb, I want to get into kind of, you know, you shared, I feel like 90% of your story. I think the 10% is the best at the end because it makes all the 90% before it so much more special. Everything you've been doing recently. And I think that starts with, I'm going to try to fill this out as best as I can. You explain this to me, uh, running the tear, uh, the trail of tears. Can you take me through that experience, the reason behind doing it and where the idea first came from as well as the experience itself? Uh, Yeah, this is a crazy story. So while I was locked up, the local paper, which is the Cherokee one feather comes across the, the common area in the jail and our tribe partners with Cherokee nation out in Oklahoma and they do what is called remember the removal bike ride the rtr bike ride and this is something they do every every may they bike a thousand miles along the northern route of the trail of tears for those of you who don't know the trail of tears is when the government took um indigenous land it's five civilized tribes i'm gonna try to get them all right now um seminole cherokee choctaw um creek and chickasaw so they took all of our land, moved us out to Indian country in Oklahoma, and that's what became the Trail of Tears. So in remembrance of our ancestors um, and honor of them, they do this bike ride. 
I see the the paper come across the table and I'm like, they're talking about the different writers. We're talking about the journey. And I'm thinking to myself, when I get out of here, that's something that I want to do. I want to experience that. I want to train hard for that. And, you know, I want to be a part of something like this. And so I get out of jail. I go to apply for the bike ride. They tell me, Caleb, you got a felony drug conviction on your record. You can't, you can't participate in the bike ride. So I'm trying to advocate for a rule change. I go to our tribal council, our leadership, um, vice chief in chief, and I'm standing in front of this called the horseshoe where all the leadership sits. And I remember it's being televised live and I'm advocating on council for a rule change. Long story short, they said, we can't do it. I said, well, if you're not going to let me ride the bike, I'll run it. I had no idea what I was saying in the moment. I just spouted something out because I was angry, I think, and a little bit of ego was coming up. And I was thinking, well, if they're not going to let me ride the bike, then I'll just freaking run to Oklahoma myself. And so after I said that, I remember looking around at some of the faces of my tribal leadership and they scoffed and rolled their eyes. And I was thinking to myself, they, they're looking at me like I'm just Caleb the junkie, Caleb the addict. Like, and so many people have came out and said they were going to do things and then they don't do it. And I'm like, I'm not going to be that guy. I want to make sure I follow through. I'm going to make sure I do the work and go out and say what I'm going to do. And so I start training. This is November 2017, May 14th, 2018. I set off on this journey running the bench route, the Trail of Tears. Um, very early on in my running journey, I'd only been running maybe five, six months at the time. And I uh, ended up running 800 miles in 40 days, so 20 miles a day. I had my wife, um, who's my girlfriend at the time. She was supporting me along with my mom, and they would go, you know, three, four, five miles. I'd run, catch up to the truck, get something to eat, something to drink, and we'd done this over day after day after day until we got to Oklahoma. One of the major things that happened during that trip was my aunt died from endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart stemmed from her drug use. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what do I do in this moment? This is the, this is the most adversity I'd faced since I've been, been in recovery. And I'm like, this is the time where I get to practice what I preach. Like, our suffering is sacred, right? What do you do with that? What, what would my aunt want me to do? Would she want me to quit and turn around and go home? Or do I continue to see this thing through? And so I remember um, staying out there. My mom had to come back and bury her sister, my aunt. And Caitlin and I, my wife and I, we stayed out on the road and we continued on this journey. And one of the crazy things that happened during that trip, Dom, I had a girl, we started getting some regional news coverage, Chattanooga, Knoxville, some other places, Asheville. And this, this woman messages me randomly on Facebook and she was like, I need you to call me. I got something to share with you. So I call her. She's located in Texas. She sees one of the articles or one of the stories. And she said, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I had a dream and you had these big shackles around your neck. And in this dream, every like you have this huge amount of weight around your neck with these chains. And every step that you're taking, these chain links were breaking off of you. And I was like, I'm running through the middle of Tennessee and I just chalk it up like crazy coincidence, you know? And I was like, well, thanks for sharing. So a couple of days later, my wife is waiting on me to catch up to the truck. Right. So she goes out for a little jog. She turns around cause she knew I was going to be getting to the truck soon. So she turns around and where she stops to turn around at, there's a chain link. So we're like, okay. Coincidence. She picks up the chain link. You know, we keep going a few days later, I was running 49 miles that day in honor of my aunt and it's we're at 47 miles in and we had two miles to go it's like 11 o'clock at night we're i think somewhere in missouri at the time and we're standing around the truck getting some some something to eat and something to drink and my wife like she screams and steps back and i thought she stepped on the snake and right where we had stopped that night there's a chain link laying there like right at our feet and I was like, all right, God, all right, I see what you're doing. So another few days go by and I'm in Osage, Arkansas. I've got a documentary coming out and we actually, um, we actually retell this story in the documentary, but Osage, Arkansas, I'm running down the, the highway and I look over to my right and it's got, there's a sign up that says McCoy's garage. 
And at the time, I'm listening to Conway Twitty. That's my job. I guess my, me and my dad used to sing that song together all the time. So I'm like running down the road, listening to this song. It's making me think of my dad. I look over and I see McCoy's garage. It's like, all right, I'm meant to be here, you know? So I stop and I take a selfie and I put my phone up. And after I take my picture, I look down and there's a chain link right where I stop, right where this, this sequence of events is, is happening. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I know, you know, God's going to do something powerful with this. So I ended up finishing June 28th, 2018. That was on my birthday. And uh, that is honestly one of the things that catapulted my running. What, what if I would have got to do the RTL ride? I probably wouldn't have started running. I wouldn't have started my nonprofit, you know. Um, I probably wouldn't be be included, including this uh, curriculum called Addict to Athlete in our nonprofit. So there's all these things that were that God was orchestrating in 2018 that I didn't understand that are now coming to fruition. And it all started with me being denied and experiencing some adversity and not allowing that to stop me and finding a way around or through that that has led me to where I'm at today in so many ways. Caleb, one of the words your dad shared with you on his deathbed was giving back. He said something to the extent of that. You're certainly doing that through the nonprofit and other things you're doing. I would love to hear you share on those different things, different ways you're giving back to the community and quite frankly, giving back to that former self. I always love people who are creating things they wish they had and it's beautiful to think that younger Caleb could have been impacted or changed as a result of coming across the things you're doing. And so can you share it as well as how special is it to think that you're changing, you know, you're, you're, you know, we talked about that conversation you'd have with your 11 year old self. I'm not sure if you're ministering to 11 year olds, but it's kind of that, that theory that you're doing that, you know, that's what you're doing. Yeah. So I definitely think it's that's been something that's really important in my life is to figure out a way to help to impact the younger generation, you know. And I've, the average age for first-time drug use is 11 years old, so it's really, really important to for me to be able to create these opportunities, like within my own personal life, um, and also to our nonprofit, which is called Res Hope Recovery and Consulting. And we're opening up a men's transitional living home. So we have um, a, a very, very impactful and profound continuum of care here in Cherokee, where we have um, a detox facility, we have a rehab facility, we have men's home, a women's home. But what we don't have is kind of that, that space when it, what happens whenever people are leaving detox, but they don't go to rehab or they're leaving rehab and they don't have a, a good environment to go back to, you know, and, I think that's really important to make sure that you're not going back to the same environment that kept you sick or it's somebody that's coming out of jail that can't go to rehab, but they just need a place to a, a very safe place, you know, something, a, a program that's going to help them to grow, help them to heal. And so that that's going to be us, that, that transitional living home, that gap in that continuum of care. And, you know, we're going, we're going to try to take a holistic approach with, helping these men heal mind, body, soul, um, connecting the culture, connecting the faith um, culture. When I say that, I mean Cherokee culture, indigenous culture. I think it's really important to know who you are as an indigenous man, something that I'm still learning. Um, and just, I'm very, I'm very early on in that journey as well. But um, yeah, that's just one of the things that we're trying to implement here in our community Another thing that we've done over the past several years is go into high schools and share a story, talk about the things that uh, talk about our mental health, how that played a big role in us using to talk about the domestic violence and my wife's story, sexual assault, things of that nature, having these really tough conversations, because like you said a few minutes ago, like with the suicidal ideations, 20 percent, like there's so many people out there that are experiencing these things that don't talk about it. It's so taboo. They feel like they can't talk about it. And so for my wife and I, it's really important for us to, to be vulnerable, to lead with vulnerability because that is strength, you know? And, I, and so we go into high schools. I've spoken to college teams. I've spoken to just different, different groups over the past several years. So that's another thing that we do as well. Um, I want to host a run camp here in Cherokee 
eventually. And, and, you know, like I get the opportunity to share some of my running journey in the local papers and stuff like that. So I know some of the younger kids are watching and I would love for them to look at me, Dom, and say, well, if Caleb can run, you know, 230, 230 something in a marathon, I can go to the Olympics. You know, and I, I want to inspire something like that. I want to spark something like that. And so I think it's really, really important to have those intrinsic motivators in your life. Of why, like, it's not about you. It's about giving back. It's about having purpose. It's about making an impact and leaving a legacy. And so serving people in those capacities is really important to me. In a word, you're in the thick of marathon training, marathon coming up next month. You're very fit. Uh, the funny story in Orlando, people, uh, Caleb, I think, had ran seven miles in the morning. I think this was the day before, like, 20 mile or something. So you're already in the midst of heavy training. Ran seven miles in the morning, and I had to go for, like, my three-mile three mile shakeout before a 5K the next day. And uh, I was, like, not procrastinating all day, but I didn't have a window to do it. Found the window. I'm literally passing you as I'm going to go stretch to run. I'm like, hey, Caleb. I'm like, want to run three miles with me? I'm like joking. It's like you're having the conversation with people. Uh, come to find out like you had eaten a whole pizza and you do like four miles with me. I'm like, this man's an animal. He's ready to rip something fast. Anyways, all of my rambling aside, you're fit. You're ready. Talk about this marathon build and what it means to you. Well, I'm uh, actually hired a videographer. It's it's an important race for me because it's going to be a, my first local marathon. It's going to be in Asheville, which is about an hour away from me. So having some people from my community come out and support me and cheer me on and see me compete and see me in my elements, really important. And also to um, it's four days before my dad's birthday. So I'm dedicating this race to my dad. Also March the 3rd was when my sister passed away from an overdose in 2019. And so March is a, it's really important month for me. And so I want to be thinking of my, my sister and my dad and that I want to be using that as fuel, man. And, you know, I'm really, really looking forward to going out and competing and leaving it all out there and, and just, uh, yeah, suffering well. Caleb, final serious question for you. What would be the final takeaway message that you want to leave with our audience today? I think that, the audience that, that I think you, you are touching and impacting and a lot of your listeners are obviously runners. And I think that understanding why you run, having those intrinsic motivators, and it's, it's not connected to race times or performances so much because 99% of us don't run professionally. So understanding, like, have a good understanding of why you run, is really, really important. That's something that I'm preaching to my, my athletes about here currently because I feel like if you have a good understanding of your why and it's a healthy why, it's going to sustain you for the rest of your life. Um, and also, too, trying to find maybe a purpose to your run and how to give back to other people. That's really, really important as well. Caleb, one more serious question for you. Uh, not so serious. I would love to have you direct people to whatever you want them to, whether it's the nonprofit, uh, something like your Strava, could be whatever. Where do you want to direct people to? I'll leave a link in the show notes, but just so people can verbally hear, where do you want to direct people today? Yeah, so um, my nonprofit is called Res Hope, R-E-Z-H-O-P-E. We actually have an Instagram page. We're working on getting our website up and running here soon. And then my personal Instagram is recovery line recovery R O C O R E C O V E R Y L I O N 86. And then my Strava, you know, it's uh it's my name, Caleb McCoy, the second and my coaching page is lines in fitness on Instagram. Give him kudos on March 16th when he runs a crazy time in the marathon. <laughs> Let's go. Caleb, Caleb final question for you on a lighter note the question i ask every single guest on every single podcast if you had gordon ramsay coming over to your house for dinner what would you personally choose to make for him that i would make for him yeah chef caleb snack okay um one of my favorite things to eat especially after a race is some sort of spicy chicken and waffles Ooh. i would probably go with something like that okay that sounds very good to me at least at uh 
3 p.m. on a Thursday. So I'm sure I'm sure Gordon would <laughs> would enjoy it. But Caleb, in all seriousness, appreciate you blessing me and the thousands who will listen to today's conversation with your story. I feel like I know your story, and then every time I hear it again, I I learn new details about it. God touches me in a new way with it, and I guarantee you I'm not the only one. So I really appreciate your vulnerability and openness to share your story today, and I can't wait to see, and I, I rarely say this, but I'm so confident in this episode. I can't wait to see the impact that this one makes. Thank you, Dom. I appreciate the opportunity, man. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. I don't take your time for granted, so I hope that it brought you some wisdom and value that you can apply directly into your running and into your life. If you have not already done so, please consider giving us a follow and a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And then something all of you guys can do is share today's episode or the podcast in general with a friend or someone who you think will benefit from it. One more note, if you're not already following us on Instagram, consider doing so. My Instagram tag is at the running effect. I hope your running and life is going well. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to listen to today's episode. I will catch you in two days when the next episode drops. Until then, happy running.